Well, there's, a, you know, there's really two, I would say there's two parts to every legacy. One is the human capital, the wisdom that gets transferred. And the other is the financial capital. Um, we all know what that is. As advisors, our business is based on the transfer of financial capital, but our sensitivity is very focused on the issues that tend to be the most important, and that is the human capital. Welcome to the Business Transition Roadmap. My name is Elizabeth Ledoux, and through my years, I have seen how communities thrive when business succession and transition are done well. Me and my team at the Transition Strategists have been helping business owners develop and implement transition strategies for over 30 years. And on this show, we want to help you by giving you the roadmap to a healthy business transition. Let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Business Transition Roadmap. Today, we are, I am so grateful to have Mark Richards with us. Um, you, I think, are going to have the opportunity to learn so much from his story and some of the experience that he's had. He currently is the principal of Winged Keel Group, um, and he leads the Denver office here in Colorado. Um, what they do is they offer creative wealth transfer strategies for legacy preservation, and um, it's pretty wonderful, the services that they provide. Mark has an incredible background. He not only is a business owner and has gone through a terrific um, merger with Winged Keel, but he also has just over 30 years of background and experience working with ultra high net worth people and business owners, helping them to navigate their future with regard to wealth transfer and also legacy preservation. So Mark, I'd like to welcome you and just am, again, appreciative that you're here. So can you tell us a little bit about you? Thank you, Elizabeth. Yeah, unfortunately it's, uh, it's actually 44 years now of experience. Uh, and, uh, that's, good. that's, uh, that's just, uh, probably, a, 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 what happens when you're not employable. Uh, the, uh, the uh, career that I've ended up in um, has really evolved uh, over the years, and it's been very exciting to be a part of that. And I think that the next decade, which I plan on participating in, is going to actually be the most exciting decade of, uh, of what my career has been thus far. So I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing this all the way through. And what I mean by that is, uh, when I started, uh, it was with a firm by the name of Capital Analyst, and uh, I ha didn't have an understanding of what I was doing. I had left New York and Wall Street, came out to Colorado, um, and worked through a employment agency to uh, find a uh, position. And uh, this firm was in a nascent uh, area known at the time as financial planning. In 1980, now that term is trite, but in 1980, that terminology was brand new. Nobody knew what that meant. And, um, and you know, it, it's it's one of those terms that's fungible, can mean different things. But it did mean buy-sell planning, continuity planning, estate planning, um, key, you know, uh, key person, benefit planning, uh, broad-based qualified plans. Um, and, uh, and, and at the time, 1980, 
tax shelters. And uh, so it really was a very holistic approach to uh, planning. And, uh, and it was working with uh, small businesses, businesses of uh, 20 million or more in revenue, uh, which in 1980 were fairly large businesses. And, uh, and then over the ensuing 44 years, that same theme uh, really held true throughout what became uh, the MJ Richards Company and then the Madison Group and now Winged Keel. So there were three uh, platform migrations uh, that were all legacy uh, evolutions. And, uh, and, and, and those all stayed true to that original theme. However, over the course of that, uh, the, uh, the core competency from the very beginning was in the uh, life insurance area. And now it's, uh, and it has been for uh, decades, uh, pure life insurance based planning. So, uh, Wing Keel is a, uh, is, is the largest independent agency that I'm aware of in the United States, uh, focused on the ultra affluent as defined by mainly centimillionaires and billionaires and, and the needs of that market and, uh, and the business owners, um, which, uh, life insurance, it's really about um, cash for future delivery, and uh, cash is oftentimes the missing component uh, in a uh, in a legacy plan. Right. So yeah. So that. So yeah. Your your um, your bio definitely has for over thirty years. So definitely need to update that. <laughs> to go to 44 that's incredible um, yeah, congratulations. And the really incredible part is to plan on another decade Elizabeth that's the part that I'm and, and to have that be the part that I'm most excited about and that's really uh, that's probably pretty unique oh yeah well and you know uh, you know, it's slated to be the largest wealth transfer time in our world's history. And so it's pretty incredible to think about that. And, um, and through that, the life insurance and some of the work that you do is just crucial in that, um, you know, baby boomers getting a little bit older, business owners starting to transition at probably a higher rate out of their companies and then doing the planning on you know, what does that legacy preservation look like? So when you think about, um, just for our, our listeners, when you think about legacy preservation, what does that mean so that they understand that? Well, there's, uh, you know, there's really two, I would say there's two parts to every legacy. One is the human capital, the wisdom that gets transferred. And the other is the financial capital. Um, we all know what that is. So um, as advisors, uh, our business is based on the transfer of the financial capital, but our sensitivity is very focused on the issues that tend to be the most important, and that is the human capital, preparing errors, um, transferring values, uh, having good communication and governance, so that future generations have a, a strong sense of a uh, connection to what came before and a uh, shared mission for what the family is uh, 
planning on doing in the uh, uh, going forward next generation or generations. Um, so a successful wealth transfer and legacy plan um, is often referred to as one that perpetuates a family's um, common identity and uh, um, perpetuates the family uh, resources for 500 years. So talking about very, uh, very long time frames in defining success. And uh, most people have heard that expression of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. What they may not be aware of is that every culture has a form of that expression. Italian culture is something stables, the horse stables, the horse stables, and the uh, Dutch is clogs to clogs, and the Asian is uh, rice patties to rice patties. And so the, the every generation uh, has observed that the natural atrophy of a family wealth is three generations, the creation generation, the preservation generation, and the dissipation generation. And, and and that cycle can be changed. And the reason, I believe, the reason that you would try to change that is because it is so devastating to be part of that generation that is the uh, dissipation generation, the generation that you meet at a cocktail party and says, yeah, my family used to have wealth. Yeah. Yeah, we used to have that. And just to put kind of to paint the picture, because um, I think our listeners know that I think in timelines and the the timeline, um, many people right now, business owners, wealth creators, um, some of them have active companies. Some of them have created wealth outside of their business as well. But some of them are, you know, they say that 80% of a normal entrepreneur's wealth is held inside of their company typically. And so as businesses transition, if you kind of fast forward, if you have a business and you transition it, then um, potentially you've got a liquidity event. You have wealth, um, invest all of that. And in my mind, that's creating in a way, a business that is a family business uh, that then can continue on into the next generation. So even if you're in a business today and you're thinking about leaving, um, fast forward and start to think about what, where does this wealth go? What do you want to do with it? And how is it going to benefit future generations if that's what you're choosing to do? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I would add on to what you said, Elizabeth, that uh, I think it is important to view business not in the traditional terms of being a manufacturing or service company that has, you know, multi-generational family ownership, because more and more, especially of ultra-low interest rates and the mm -hmm. formation of all these private equity investors, uh, there's been many... Uh, long-standing multi-generational businesses which have gotten offers that are just uh, uh, too good to uh, turn down and uh, they've seen it as a generational opportunity to monetize the business so there has been a real uh, in um, the monetization of businesses leading to oftentimes as you point out 
these uh, family office kind of configurations uh, where families with large wealth can have a centralized place to manage some of the complexity, to coordinate among the different branches of the family, the, uh, you know, the shared planning, uh, like the multi-generational trusts, and to uh, uh, hopefully uh, start to think like a business, even though it may look like a hedge fund or a uh, private equity fund uh, instead of the traditional um, you know, uh, operating business. Right, right, and that's a that's a shift in some people's thinking because we do have that traditional vision, and so again, um, you know, what do you do when you transition, and how does that work? And that's why I like the overarching thought of um, actually understanding what your next adventure really looks like, and what do you want to do with it, and how do your relationships fit into that, especially with the family side, right? So good. So, um, gosh. I am dying to ask you, actually. Um, so you just recently went through the process of taking the firm that you had and merging it into a larger firm. And I'd like to just ask you, um, you know, what are some of the highlights of that, if you'll, if you'll share those? And then what about that really worked for you? Uh, thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Yeah, it was uh, very interesting for me because, whoops, I had been, um, I had been um, at the Madison Group, the, the former firm before the merger, uh, proud of the fact that we were a 55-year-old firm. Uh, but one of the phenomenons that we were experiencing as a 55-year-old firm in the pro in the business of distributing life insurance, uh, was that we were delivering on average $50 million of death benefit a year for the last seven years before the merger. And, uh, uh, you know, seeing all that money going into families, sometimes in some years it was largely all one policy, uh, others it would be several policies. Um, obviously, since $50 million was an average, some years were bigger, some were smaller. But uh, what I recognized is that many of those benefits would have never gotten to the, out, the outcome they wanted and, and, and to the trust or whatever the ownership and beneficiary structure was if it hadn't been for the Madison Group having been there all along the way and making the adjustments because they sold the business. We're going to continue the insurance. They would call time and had to... Uh, uh, mitigate the uh, premium payments, or they had to, uh, or uh, they had a change in how they wanted to uh, structure the insurance and didn't like being in a fixed income type uh, investment driver, uh, whatever it was, uh, or the trust changed, or the family di the family configuration changed, or uh, you know, all of these things required oftentimes revisiting the original structure and. Uh, and, and solving for uh, whatever was the need at the time. And if it hadn't been for that active conversation and knowing how to loop in the advisory team and get everybody on the same page and uh, make sure that, the, uh, that there was a, a theme that, the, uh, that, that resonated with the, uh, with the client, uh, a theme of what this, 
was you know, what this was going to do, what purpose it was going to serve, many of those benefits would have never been delivered. So as we got to where we, uh, you know, as I was a sole owner of the Madison Group after our, our first succession, um, so, you know, succession for me was being the sole owner of uh, the M.J. Richards Company, then being uh, a shareholder in the Madison Group, then being the sole owner of the Madison Group, and now being principal of the Wayne Keel Group. And uh, so I've seen, you know, personally this, this succession. Um, and um, what I recognize, and I also had an, an advisory uh, board, which we called the Wisdom Council. And the Wisdom Council met quarterly and we reported to them. And that was helpful for me because as a sole owner, I, I wanted accountability. And so by reporting to this uh, very uh, wise group of four on a quarterly basis, I was always nervous about those. And I wanted to make sure the information was in good shape and that it would be my chance to check on where we were, what our progress was. And uh, in one of those meetings, they, uh, they said, Mark, uh, we would like you to uh, come up with a plan B plan, which was a succession plan, and uh, it was going actually quite well, but they were, their concern was that we could run out of time. And so um, I uh, uh, was fortunate to have a firm that we had worked with for 20 years, Winged Keel Group, uh, in a um, uh, joint venture basis in one of their specialty areas known as private placement life insurance, which was a very uh, unique area of, of life insurance. And they were the undisputed experts in that area. So whenever we had that uh, need for a client, we would uh, team up with Wink Heel and uh, joint venture on the work. So we had that experience of working together. We knew each other. We had built trust. We had built relationship. And so um, when they asked for the plan B, I knew who to go to. And I went right to them. And, and, and as fortune would have it, uh, we sat down and at that time, Wayne Keel was already on a path towards expanding from their New York-centered office into Boston and Richmond and Dallas and uh, Houston and San Francisco. And, uh, and so when we were having dinner, um, I said, you know, have you ever thought that you need something in the middle of the country? And uh, the principal, the managing partner, said, uh, absolutely, that's what I was hoping dinner would be about. So oh. Denver, uh, being an attractive market, made that uh, you know, uh, pretty uh, attractive to Wink Keel. And, uh, and you know, that, that, I think, will continue. I think the, the, the vision of the Wink Keel Group is to become the first independent, open architecture, um, national firm distributing life insurance and annuities to the uh, uh, the ultra affluent, which is by but by the way a term I don't really like very much. It's a point across, but the, the, really the folks that we work with, I think the better way of saying it, although a little more wordy, is uh, where families have assets in excess of their needs and wants. Yeah, which is great. That's great. I like that definition a lot better. <laughs> yeah, because a lot of people, you know, have that opportunity. So, and they wouldn't label themselves as ultra high net worth either, right? But they have that they ability to have more than what their basic needs either. are. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Well, that's a great story. So, as you just to share with our audience, as you traveled through all of the succession opportunities, right? Transition opportunities. 
Um, if you look back, what might be one or two things that you look back and go, wow, that did not work very well, that you wouldn't want to do that again? Anything that pops to mind? Yeah, I think uh, both the Wing Keel Group and myself at the Madison Group, um, I would say having a partner that did not have the same vision, uh, you uh, were spending as much time with internal disputes as you were uh, uh, focusing on the firm uh, is something that I would uh, really avoid at all. You know, I would be very uh, con conscious of that and, and very uh, careful and would recommend anybody being very careful about uh, the partners you have because it's just like you know, your friends uh, they're either lifting you up and making you better, or they are um, taking you down and uh, distracting you from, you know, your uh, uh, your most uh, your your better self and your and, and your most productive self. So I think that uh, you know having having the wrong partners um, is uh, one of the huge risks, and that, that could be a, for a life partner in, in a marriage. Or for a business partner, and you probably deal with that a lot, Elizabeth. Where that's you know one of the hangups in the succession planning is uh, a partner who is contentious and doesn't have a shared vision and is uh, an obstacle to uh, what you see as an, as a consultant as being you know what would be best for the business and the stakeholders. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 in our transition compass, we have the the big six. You know, the the why, the who, the what, the when, the how, and the how much. Those are the big six questions that don't have to be answered in the beginning, but they do need to be or will be answered in the end at the time of transition. And I would, in my career, the one that people struggle most with is who. That's, you know, who do we bring in? How do we know they're going to be a great successor? Um, how do we know they're going to make it? Um, how do we know that they're going to be the right one, that they're going to make it, that they're going to lead well, that, you know, it's going to be good for them and good for the business. So we, the who is really interesting and lots of heartache sometimes over that, especially if you have to include and exclude people. Um, and the other one, the shared vision, you know, we see this all the time where um, people will start a company together. They're both focused on the same thing. So we'll have a party of two, right? Two, two partners. They're focused on the same thing. They're building, growing, building, growing. And even if they're the same age, they might be at a different place in life, have, um, you know, different aged kids or have um, different circumstances, of course, that go on. And um, what happens is what they're one focus was even if they were shared in the beginning, that vision and those values, um, at some point in time, sometimes they separate because they have different things that they want to do in their lives after the business. And um, that can be quite challenging as well. So who you're dealing with, I think, is so important. So thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, we, uh, you know, you mentioned the great answer. Uh, was driving that a, a very large demographic bulk, right, of baby boomers. 
successful. And, uh, yeah. That, uh, that is, if you look at the macro picture, every organization I'm part of, every volunteer uh, position, every, um, every affiliated firm that we work with, uh, pretty much everybody is going through a transition at the same time because of that large demographic shift. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting observation on that. Yeah. And the thing is, is it creates a lot of opportunity for people who are entrepreneurial or willing to take a risk. Um, and it's hard to find those people. So by the way, if you're listening and you're one of them, take a look and see if you can find a business or somebody that you might want to trust and go talk to, because there are definitely opportunities out there and finding the who is really not the easiest thing to do. So, yeah, on that, uh, you know, estate planning is, uh, often viewed as complex. We've done it for so long that it, you know, doesn't have the complexity to us anymore, but, uh, the, uh, to, to the one who's entering and, and uh, about all the different tax uh, it can be, uh, they get through all that. Where they get stuck is who's going to be the trustee. That becomes the most difficult decision in the uh, transferring of wealth is who do I trust enough to make the family and with my wealth that will honor the intent that I had. And that, um, just as the name implies, is a very a sacred fiduciary response that oftentimes to identify. And you think about it, somebody who's been out there uh, with big networks uh, throughout a lifetime of achievement and has a difficult time identifying one person who they can trust to do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in many cases, um, not in, I don't think in all cases, but in many cases, trustees are required, right, in order to um, create some of the tax opportunities that get passed on to the generations. Because without the trustee, that doesn't work. So, um, yeah, you can't yeah. own it. And if you can't own it, then uh, that means that uh, usually an irrevocable trust, um, the owner, and uh, that uh, irrevocable trust is going to have a manager, which is a trustee. And so it can't be you. It can't be your spouse, typically. Uh, you, you're going to have it be, uh, uh, and, it, it may not, and, and you probably don't want it to have, be one of the beneficiaries. So now you're, you know, you've taken the closest people and disqualified them, and now looking at institutions. And, uh, and so it's just, to, to your point, it's always a real challenge, but the it more is, you can, um, you know, the more you can have you know strong relationships in your life, and the more you can have your story be known. So we do something called a financial uh, family financial philosophy statement, where we capture the narrative of the individual and how that wealth was created, and that that narrative, um, which is how we go into the world, right, with a, our identity is in a, in, a, in, a, in a form of story. We all have our story. And if you capture that story, it's so much easier. In a, in a multi-generational trust situation, there are going to be beneficiaries who never meet the grantor, the creator of that trust. 
So having that story uh, documented is uh, really helpful in, in both informing the trustee as to what the individual might want and the beneficiaries of what the intent was and uh, connecting them to the uh, source of the good fortune. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Great point. So, so I always, or just about in our time, Mark, and it goes so fast. Uh, this has been such a great conversation. And I always like to ask just kind of one final question and have one last little conversation about what one thing would you like to leave with our listeners about business transition or wealth transition that you think would be most beneficial to them? I just finished reading David Brooks' book, How to Know a Person. And at one point in the book, he talks about his view on what makes a great marriage. And he says that a great marriage is one where both partners uh, do for the other without any expectation of return for themselves. And I think that that is also uh, what makes a great partnership in business, whether you're true partners in shared ownership or uh, just playing different roles in the business. And I think that uh, uh, as hard as that might be for some people, I think if you are doing what you feel is right and you're doing it for pure reasons, um, that you're going to have good outcomes. And uh, maybe more importantly, uh, you're going to uh, preserve the integrity to ultimately successful, even if not in that current configuration. Right. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. So um, great reference to that book. And um, I think it's difficult at times to do things for others without any expectation of return. Um, that can be a practice that probably most, if not all of us, can uh, pay attention to and see if we can work that into our lives at an even higher level than we're already doing that. Um, because, yeah, I think wanting something for someone else instead of yourself in a business transition really helps to give a gift to them of allowing them to be themselves and to do what they need to to be whole. And um, that's, I think, putting people first is so important. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, uh, George Washington uh, set that example when he chose uh, not to be a king and not to run for a second term. Uh, and uh, that was a gift to uh, our, our country and an example uh, uh, for all others to, you know, learn from. And I think that uh, I think that uh, with that kind of a legacy, uh, we can uh, didn't turn out too bad for George Washington, at least in a historic contest. Contest. That's right. That's right. Well, Mark, um, we're at our time. So thank you again for joining us today and just some wonderful nuggets of knowledge that I hope our listeners will take to heart as they listen. And um, yeah, just appreciate you. So thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Same. Appreciate you and have a good rest of the day. I will. I will. And if anybody wants to get in touch with Mark, his information is going to be following this podcast. He um, 
he is a person that if you have questions and things like that, you can trust him to um, reach out and he will definitely give you what he has with no expectation. So, yeah. Thanks, Mark. Bye, Elizabeth. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Business Transition Roadmap. If you are listening to this and you find yourself wanting to go deeper into these topics and start the process of putting together your transition strategy, I'd love to offer you a free initial strategy session with my team, where we'll help you to explore the future transition of your business. Head over to www.transitionstrategist.com to schedule a call. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Business Transition Roadmap.